All glory, praise, and honor be unto Thee, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee that of Thy grace and mercy that Thou hast brought all things into being, that Thou hast made heaven and earth with all the majesty and glory thereof, and hast made us the heirs of creation. Make us ever mindful of our responsibility to bring all things under the dominion of Jesus Christ to recapture for thy kingdom that which was lost through Adam, that in Jesus Christ all things may be made new, and that we, having been made new by Christ, may carry the principle of renewal into all creation. Grant us this, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our subject this morning is the land and the poor, and we shall look at a series of texts which deal with this subject, some of the more significant texts. First of all, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. All these texts deal with the treatment of the poor in the law. They are extensively used and developed in the prophets and in the New Testament. First of all, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field. Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then Leviticus 25, 35. The first text dealt with the law of gleaning. It meant that there could not be a total harvest that something had to be left, a fair amount, as a kind of tithe for the gleaners. 19 or 25.35 in Leviticus, And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Here we are told that we are to aid the poor, that the word relieve is literally strengthen him. Strengthen him economically and personally by being a good neighbor to him. And the next verse, of course, says, Take thou no usury of him or increase. But fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. In other words, charity must be charity. There cannot be loans that are profit-seeking to the poor. Then Deuteronomy 10 Verses 17 through 19. 
Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth a stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Here God's position is set forth. God, first of all, makes clear he is to be feared, that if we go astray, if we sin, then we have great cause to be afraid of God, who does not respect the status or economic rank of persons, nor accept bribes. He loves the stranger, the foreigner, the downtrodden, the fatherless, the widow, and therefore we are to manifest our love of God by manifesting love to these. Then in Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shall lay it up within thy gate. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come, and shall eat, and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. Now here we see that besides the annual gleaning, and this gleaning, to apply it to the modern world, applies not only to the agricultural sphere, but also to any kind of production. It is also to be accompanied every third year in a cycle of seven, thus the third and the sixth year, by a second tithe, a tithe that is given to further charity. Then finally, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22. Again on the law of gleaning, a little more detailed. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, Thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward, it shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. The premise of all these texts and more is that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the lawgiver because he is the creator. He gives laws to govern the land and the use of harvests 
in our treatment of the poor. Those who have the means are to care for the poor. These laws are case laws. Failure to observe these laws is robbing the poor. On the other hand, the law never says that we are to feel that the poor are entitled to our gifts. But neither does the law say that we are entitled to our harvest or production. We are all God's servants. We live on God's earth, and he therefore is alone entitled to tell us what is ours and how we are to use what he gives us. And God is far more generous in what he allows to us than what the federal government does. John Stafford, who is with us today, tells me that it has now reached 59%. 59% of our income is taken by some agency of state. God who created heaven and earth does not ask anywhere near as much. But there is another point in these texts. The poor are not simply the believing poor. They are the strangers, the sojourners, the aliens, anyone who is in need. On the other hand, it is clear that the poor cannot walk in and take what they want from our fields. There is no license to anyone to live off of their successful neighbors. These are the needy and deserving poor whom God has in mind. Widows and orphans are specifically named to indicate the kind of situation that God has in mind. Gleaners would go into a field by permission and by permission only. Moses Maimonides, the great Jewish commentator on the law, said in his book of agriculture, and I quote, Laborers are forbidden to harvest the entire field and must leave the proper amount of corner crop at the end of it. The poor people, however, have no title to the corner crop until the owner of his own will explicitly sets it apart as such. Therefore, a poor man who sees corner crop at the end of a field is forbidden to touch it on pain of being charged with robbery until it becomes known to him that it is such by the will of the owner. Unquote. The meaning of these laws is set forth by St. Paul when he declares in Ephesians 4.25, for we are members one of another. Our membership in one another is twofold. We are all members of one another by virtue of our birth in the old humanity of Adam and the fallen world. But we are also members one of another as Christians because Christians have a special relationship to each other as members of Jesus Christ. We are to meet needs in terms of both connections. Status charity is always divisive. 
It stresses membership in an impersonal entity, the state. As a result, because an impersonal entity gives charity, there is no gratitude because it is an impersonal relationship. It is significant that one Christian school in the San Francisco Bay Area, which decided two years ago to start giving weekly food to the poor in their area because they were in an economically distressed area, found that some refused to take it when they found it was not given by the federal government because they did not want to feel gratitude for anything they received. They wanted only that food which they could regard as their right. Now that's the attitude status charity creates. It is impersonal. It does not engender gratitude. It engenders instead the feeling that it is a right. Impersonal relationships are thus deadly. For a very simple illustration, I am very grateful to my wife for her constant helpfulness and I try to show it. I enjoy my bed, but I'm not grateful to my bed. It's not a person. I simply use it. There's a marked difference. An impersonal object is a very different thing from a person. And status charity comes from an impersonal object and it treats the recipients increasingly as impersonal objects. As a result, it engenders no thankfulness. It does lead to a sense of expectation and a sense of, this is my right. The result is a social disaster. Godly charity, on the other hand, unifies and heals society. It promotes communion. Thus, charity has as its foundation in Scripture that we are members one of another and our relationship is to be personal. Charity includes fellowship with the poor because we are one people in the Lord. It furthers our communion with God who tells us that he will bless us. Now from the New Testament times to the present, as well as, of course, in the Old Testament, the church has cared for the poor. We know that Jesus and his disciples did so. As a matter of fact, the treasurer who dispensed such funds was Judas, and we are told that he was a thief, according to John 12, 4-6, and John 13, 29. The New Testament church had collections regularly for the needy saints, as in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Romans 15, 26, and Acts 11, 29. According to Acts 6, 1-6, the office of deacon was created to meet such needs within the church community. Very early, to provide order, pastors and then bishops 
supervised this ministry. Money and property was accumulated to make it possible. And this was the origin of trusts and foundations. The non-Christian foundation is essentially a product of this century. And the first great one was the Carnegie Trust, which has done a great deal of evil in its day. These were organized, and the church organized its work to prevent the same person from applying to several people and to gain more than his fair share. In other words, to prevent exploitation of charity. The scriptural injunction for this was found in a number of texts, including Titus 1.8, which said that the bishop or presbyter must be a man who is a lover of hospitality, by which it is meant ever ready to care for those who need attention and to lead in the care of such people. We see early in the church how very heavily this aspect of the life of the church was stressed. For example, we have in the ecclesiastical history of the English nation by the Venerable Bede letters that deal with this subject. In 579, St. Augustine of Canterbury wrote to Pope Gregory to ask about the proper use of tithes and offerings, the ratio. And Gregory wrote back to Augustine saying, and I quote, Holy Writ, which no doubt you are well versed in, testifies, and particularly St. Paul's epistle to Timothy, wherein he endeavors to instruct him how he should behave himself in the house of God. But it is the custom of the apostolic see to prescribe rules to bishops newly ordained that all emoluments which accrue are to be divided into four portions, one for the bishop and his family because of hospitality and entertainment, another for the clergy, a third for the poor, and a fourth for the repair of churches." Unquote. Thus, very early, we see that the church was giving one-fourth of all receipts to care for needs in the community. This had very deep roots in the early church. As a matter of fact, Canon 80 of the First Council of Nicaea, when the persecutions had newly ended, declared that in every town a procurator should be named by the churches whose duty would be to care for the poor in every town under his jurisdiction. He was to be under the leadership of the church. He was to care for those in prison. He was to provide food, clothing, and a legal defense for the persecuted. Later, the relief of prisoners of war was added to his duties. The church in those days took this very seriously. Not too long after the persecutions ended, St. Cyril of Jerusalem actually sold off all the church treasures 
to provide for poor relief, and this was not uncommon over the centuries. Very early hospitals were developed, and as we look at the record of these hospitals and the diet, we find that in those early years it was superior to what came centuries later in the early modern era. Moreover, churches and monasteries provided lodging for travelers, both rich and poor, and also instruction in the brief time they were there in the faith. They cared for the lepers. They cared for every kind of human need. Now, it is a significant fact that every time statist tyranny has moved against the church. One of the first points of attack has been on charity. The confiscation of the trusts and foundations set up to alleviate human need. Very commonly in the medieval era, monarchs seized, as did the Holy Roman Emperors, such trusts and foundations. As a matter of fact, before Henry VIII ever decided to do anything, it had become routine for monarchs to seize monasteries and their trusts for the care of the poor, and the lands, of course, as well. The lands were an especial target because the lands were used to raise food and meat, to give to those who were in need. It should not surprise us, therefore, that one of the first points of attack in the last decade, when the states and the federal government began to move against Christian work, was such ministries, in particular the work of Lester Roloff in Texas. The pattern was an ancient one. The destruction of such ministries undercut the life of communion and community drastically. And whenever the church surrendered such a ministry, the church suffered dramatically. This should not surprise us. We are emphatically told by our Lord that a good tree bears good fruit. Both Paul and James tell us that faith without works is dead. And when the state has seized the area of works and cut it off, and the church has not fought to reestablish it, then the church has begun to wither. Our modern antinomianism, whereby the church frowns on works. Works have their place, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of sanctification, our growth in holiness. The antinomianism has developed as a product of statist confiscation of the works of charity by the church. In every era over the centuries, 
where the state has moved and confiscated, the church then has gone into a period of decline. The same is true when the church of its own will has failed in this area. As happened at the time of the Black Death, when the church was not as responsible as it should have been. Thus we see that works of charity are like a barometer in the life of the faith in the life of individuals and of congregations. This is why God, in these texts that we read, makes clear that he blesses us as we become a blessing to others. Thus, the destruction of such ministries has historically been a very critical matter in the life of the church. Today we see the growth of these ministries, the Christian school movement, of course, a very necessary aspect of the life of the faith. Homes to take care of delinquents, the elderly, street people, youth on drugs, every kind of need imaginable. As these needs are met, and as the church grows in this ministry, God blesses his people. For without that aspect, both the Lord's table and worship become rootless in the life of a people. The goal of the modern humanistic state is to succeed the church as the community of man. Hence its movement into these areas. It seeks to be man's true church. This was very clearly stated by Horace Mann when he created the public control or status control of education. He saw the state as the agency of salvation and the true community of man, and therefore he had to move to take education away from the faith, because ultimately it was the faith, Christian faith orthodoxy, that he sought to destroy. And as a human, as a Unitarian, his role in the destruction of this country has been fearful. Thus we must work to reestablish the life of faith in the world of practical action that we might be blessed and prospered of the Lord. Let us pray. Thy word is truth, O Lord, and thy word speaks plainly concerning our duties, our responsibilities, and thy requirements. Give us grace to hear and to obey, to become a blessing to those in need and to those around us, that we might be blessed of thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now concerning our lesson?
Yes. I'm reminded from what you say about charity that I had an interview years ago with Jimmy Hines when he was political boss of the West Side in Manhattan. And his argument against Mr. Roosevelt, he said, Mr. Roosevelt has learned everything he knows from Tammany Hall. When we used to give people food baskets or get somebody out of jail, he said, we didn't have to ask them to vote for us because they knew who did it. Mm -hmm. And we would get automatically the votes of the whole family. But he said, Mr. Roosevelt is doing this and the people don't know who is giving it to them. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's not going to turn out the way he expects. <laughs> yes. And it has not. It's been most destructive. Any other questions or comments? Yes, John. I was thinking in coming uh, into San Francisco on the same plane as a fellow from Chicago who happened to be Armenian. Uh, that uh, I was thinking about the uh, sign when you go into O'Hare Airport. It always has the mayor's name on it. Yes. And then all of the uh, state officials put their names on the stationery when they get into office. And then it has all this excess has to be thrown out each time a new uh, person comes in. But that, that gets a lot of criticism from the liberal press, but it's not necessarily bad uh, in the sense that you all were just talking about it. And I think it might tie in with that uh, concept of, uh, of uh, socialism being forced love. Mm -hmm. And if, if, the per if the recipient knows that uh, what he is getting is the result of taking by force from another, how can he feel comfortable taking something that's a result of love by force? So he isn't going to want to uh, be grateful, uh, as you talked about in the beginning with this Christian school when they found out that it wasn't from the government. Uh, it would make them feel uneasy. It makes them feel uneasy. And uh, so in a way, you can't really blame them. And I would think that it's in the form of a question. The antidote would be to get the government out of the charity business, especially when it does it uh, only by taking from others for the purpose of giving. And the only way to get the federal government and the states and cities out of the charity business is for us to take over. Exactly what we are doing in education, we must do in every other area. Take back government from the state. Any other questions or comments? If not, let us bow our heads in prayer. We thank Thee, our Father, for our time here together. Thou hast made us members one of another, hast given us the joy of salvation, the joy of fellowship with Thee and with one another. Bless us in the days ahead and give us grace, strength, and success as we plan to further Thy kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.